let me begin with just a quote here as we as we work into this this topic. Uh, I read a, came across a book from Half Price Books the other day, and I, some of you heard this. Uh, the little quote says, "When I read, I I am a full man, and when I think, I'm a deep man, and when I talk." I'm a clear man. What you communicate depends upon what you think and how well you think depends upon how well you read the Bible, how well you read the world, how well you read yourself. But with this particular topic, uh, this particular topic is going to be difficult because we have different ways of reading how we approach this whole theme of the Christian life, but in particular with this theme of changing lust to love. And so as we get into here, I would just want to have some preliminary comments to begin with, that, that when you read the Bible, so often when we read the Bible, we read it as, uh, as little bits, like pixels or atoms or verses by verses, but we forget the whole story. And so I want to remind you to keep in mind what we're talking about with, with the flow of Ephesians as you recognize Ephesians 1, we're talking about integrating heaven and earth. The idea that there's going to be an integrity when God's kingdom steps into a fallen world. He's bringing it back together. We see that in baptism in chapter 2. You've been baptized in Christ and the death the resurrection, all becomes part of this spiritual world and your view of saying, we are being put back together in him and in him we have life, in him we have resurrection. And keep that in mind because when you think about Gentiles and Jews, slaves and free, male, female, they're all brought together in this family of God called the church. And so chapter three is about this institution of the church in whom which the Spirit of God is doing this deep, deep work that you would understand, that all of us would understand, the depth, the height, the, the length, the, the width of the love of God in the inner man. Now you've got to keep these in mind because as you think about chapter 4, as the church is growing, the story of God is written in your life, you have a testimony and your life story matters. Everything that affects you matters. And therefore, the instruction as you learn to imitate Christ, as you move from a fellowship to a Bible study to Sunday school to personal devotions, you're able to hear the Lord, learn from His Spirit, open the Word, and see God work in your life in such a way that you come to chapter 5, and here we are, is you begin to imitate, imitate the master. And as you think about imitating the master, as we go into chapter six, these next two chapters are going to be, we're going to go slowly and deeply so that you, I want you to learn and say, I don't understand this. I need to know more about this. And so can we talk more about this here in the fellowship? But chapter 6 is about the spiritual battle. But he's got these Ephesians who are coming from a pagan Gentile background. They step into the church. Now, if you are a pastor, if you are an American pastor today, and you think about church and church growth, how do you get a group of people to grow up? Well, what's the first thing 
You think about Paul having given the gospel. What's the first thing Paul is going to teach these Ephesian believers? And so you might think, well, there's lots of things he could teach. He could teach about Genesis. He could teach about Abraham. He could teach about the promises of God. He could teach about the Exodus. He could teach about the covenant. He could teach about the the whole promise of Christ the Messiah coming for salvation, redemption. He could teach about assurance of salvation, teach about uh, uh, the kingdom of God. He could teach about anything. But he, he's already done the groundwork, Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and 4, and now he turns to the Ephesians. And so the question is, what's the first thing Paul is going to address so that these young Christians grow up in Christ. Now this caught me off guard. It really caught me off guard. <clears throat> but in Paul's mind it didn't because he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things pass away, behold, all things have become new. And so for Paul, when he's looking at this church who's been integrated uh, who's been incorporated, who's been included, who's got the spirit dwelling. As Paul looks at this group, the first thing he jumps into is he says, I want you to be imitators. But the imitation that you're going to imitate is going to go directly into your sexuality. Now that threw me off. Because it says, as imitators of God as beloved children walk in love. And so he's going to introduce this whole theme with the umbrella of love that if you're going to be a Christian, you need to know what love is and to understand, to imitate that love, you're going to have to look at love itself. You have to look at the Father. You have to look at Christ. You have to look at the Holy Spirit. But as he goes into this, he says, as Christ loved you and he gave himself for you because love is always other-centered, isn't it? And therefore, love is sacrificial, isn't it? But he moves right into this idea. And if you're in NIV, it says, uh, be imitators of God, follow God's example, now that's, a, that's NIV, and NIV, the word example, I want, I want to draw your attention to some of these words, so stay with me, because the idea of following an example, what we talked about mentoring last week, you, you may hear this differently. Uh, the Amplified Version says if you want, to, you want to copy, you want to do what they do, but, and then the message says watch what God does and then you do it. Well, the word in the Greek is the same word for mimic or mime, mimetes. And so if you look at mimetes, if, if, if you've ever seen a mime at the park, you never hear them speak. And so a mime is communicating without words, but this mime is going to say, uh, you're going to read from his actions see how he lives his life. And so the pattern of his life is going to run deep, but you won't see the deep side. You will just see the actions. And so this word memetes is used seven times in the New Testament. And you see that as, as a father would be the pattern for the son, Paul says, I urge you to follow me. 
follow my example. And these are all NIV. So the NIV will change example and follow and, and uh, uh, imitate all, all through. Follow God's example as beloved children here in five one. Uh, you know how we lived among you for your sake, other-centered, and you became imitators of us. And therefore, Christians will follow what they see other Christians do, and therefore it's quite important. But I want you to notice something. It says, be imitators of God <clears throat> and follow his example. But it says uh, in in Genesis 1.26, where Paul starts with is right where God starts. And he takes that word Im, uh, imitate way back to Genesis 1 to the word image. That if you were created in the image of God, uh, as God designed man and woman, that at the beginning of the Bible, he starts to talk about maleness and femaleness. He starts to talk about sexuality from the get-go. And they were naked and they weren't ashamed. And so as Paul starts where Genesis, uh, what you see Paul do is he says, there's a reflection of who God is. And that reflection is going to come out of who you are. And all that you are is going to be tied into all that he is. If you're connected, you're going to have that relationship where you can imitate, you can reflect but one of my favorite uh, teachers uh, is Vygotsky. He's a Russian educator. And he said this, through others, we become ourselves. By looking at other people, we learn who we are. And we can imitate and copy other people. Because learning is a way of reflecting the teacher, the master, the group the, you're with. And therefore, it's not wrong to imitate. <laughs> uh, as T.S. Eliot said, immature poets imitate. Mature poets steal. <laughs> so we're going to borrow a lot of things from a lot of people today. But, but it, Jesus said it this way. Every disciple is not above his teacher, but every, everyone after he's fully trained will be like him. Will be like his teacher. And therefore... It's important that you understand that there is a, a, a thinking, uh, a way that we as a group think as, as, as Baptists, as Christians, as humans, as male, female, that we tend to imitate those we are around. In Japan, if you go to Japan, all the school kids will imitate all the other school kids. But they do it from the external all the way in, from Hiroshima to Hokkaido, there is uniformity because they all follow the same rules. In Japan, there is a phrase called the kata. And the kata is a very old ancient tradition that if you are to be educated, it means you know the kata. You know the way. And if it's, uh, if it's from the handing out of a business card to the way you enter into a house or the way you eat sushi, the way there is a form for doing absolutely everything. For all life is prescribed and expected that you will be, if you are Japanese, you will conform to the Japanese kata. Well, 
that's not so different from the Hebrews because the Hebrews do also have a way. And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And therefore, there is a pattern. There is a design. There is a flow that when we're connected, you will imitate that pattern from God's very nature and how he lives his life. And therefore, we have these words that we are informed. We know his ways and we learn his ways, but we are also conformed to his ways, and we are transformed. This is what we talk about spiritual formation, that as we, as believers, meet with the Lord, and the Lord meets with us, he changes our thinking, does he not? And so we learn to follow and imitate who he is. Now, be careful with this, because if I say the word example, or there's a standard, or there's a rule, we're not talking about that kind of following of a, a conformity to the rule. But there's a, a man, Henry J. Nguyen, who wrote The Wounded Healer. Great man. I, I, I have trouble when I read this. I thought, who am I to talk about Henry Nguyen? Uh, a great man. But he wrote this. He says, when the imitation of Christ, the imitation of Christ does not mean to live a life like Christ, but to live your life as authentically as Christ lived his. If you think that, then there are many ways to think about living the Christian life. I disagree with that. Uh, you got to read that carefully because it says that if you can just live authentic life, it's Christ-like. And that, in this day and age, uh, a non-believer could take that and say, well, I'm authentic. I am who I am. I am my own man. And so it's not about being authentic, though it is being authentic, but it's authentic in the fact that it matches and reflects who Jesus is. And so the scriptures are very clear. We are to be conformed to this kata, this way of heaven. This is the kingdom passage, the kingdom pattern, sorry. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called by him according to his purpose, and those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of a son. You see, what God is trying to do is to integrate heaven and earth, bring it back together. He's going to bring it through baptism, bring you back into that relationship so that Christ's spirit works in you and, and through you, you reflect that very image and then you can imitate, you can imitate the Lord. Jesus said it this way, if I then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example. Jesus expects us, is looking and anticipating that our lives would shift in such a way that how he lives his life is how we live our life. And therefore, those passages I said last week, that the rich ruler said, no, I don't want those values. Sorry, Jesus, I don't want to follow you. I don't want to be compassionate to the poor. Or when you have when you have unbelief and you have people split off, you will find that resistance. But Jesus was always saying uh, to his disciples to, to, to follow me. And that means if you're going to follow, there's going to be definite change in your life. And that's when Paul picks up this idea that in Philippians, that your attitude 
the mind of Christ will be yours. And we'll come back to this in a little bit later in the, ser- in the sermon with a, an exercise to help you remember that. But here's the point. I want you to remember this is the flow. This is the flow of the scriptures. And if you don't hear that flow, and I've got to get this right up front again, if you don't hear that, you are going to misread chapter 5. Seriously misread it. So I didn't want you to do that. So when you read the Bible, keep in mind, and the context is this, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4. He was just talking about that those who are living a lifestyle who are going to quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. That's the context. And then he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. These are not the kingdom patterns. These are not the things that reflect or imitate the nature of God. But notice where he goes. He says, I want you to be kind to one another. I want you to be tender-hearted to one another. I want you to forgive one another, just as God, like God, imitating God in Christ, imaged himself, He's forgiven you. Now that's the context. Now what you're going to find as you move into chapter 5 is the reality for the Christians in Ephesus. Again, here's your flow. Integration, inclusion, institution, instruction. And now he says, imitate. Imitate. What are you to imitate? What I just said. Are you kind? Are you tender-hearted? Are you forgiving? Are you laying aside those things? If you are, then you're ready to go into five. Now watch this, because it's very, very, very important that you hear this, because it will affect how you mimic or imitate Christ to people outside in our community. This is very hard to get across, and so I want you to hear this, because some Christians may read this next passage with an entirely different attitude as they're thinking. And so I want you to hear me as I explain this passage, because when you're talking about sexuality, when you're talking about lust, there's nothing that's more dangerous in our church, to the churches this day and age, than how we communicate, how we how we we are coming from a position where either we're informed or we're thinking or we're communicating. But many people will read this passage, the next passage, that that when when Paul talks about Ephesians 5.3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Now that passage, that passage, you really have to go slowly. Now we will go slowly through this, but I want you to hear how some Christians will read that passage. This is about standards. This is about ethics. This is about morals. And therefore Christianity is simply a high standard of morality. And therefore you should not do this. You should not do that. You should not be involved in pornography. You should not be involved in, in whatever unclean sexual practice, living together, hooking up, 
sex texting, all these things that are part and parcel of our culture should not be named, not even a hint. Therefore, don't do it becomes the rule. And you will hear this. Or you will hear people say, I've got to, I've got to work on this. I've got to perform to work on purity because I, I've got pressure. And so you will hear this passage. I can't do this. I've got to do this. And there will be a lot of pressure for some people as they read this passage. It's about behavior management. If you get rid of these things, you're okay. And therefore, I don't do those things. I don't go on the internet for pronoun. I'm okay. Remember what we said last week? Jesus said, if you don't do these behaviors, he says, even though you don't do the behaviors, it's what's in your heart. Even if you don't murder, it doesn't mean you haven't dealt with the anger. You've got to go a little bit deeper than just the behavioral lack of behaviors. There's something deeper going on. And that's true. People will hear... This is, this is ridiculous. This is impossible. And that's why the passage that we read, is there anything impossible for God to do? Well, yeah. I've been dealing with the sin for most of my life and I can't deal with it. So God hasn't done, I don't think God has done what I thought he should do and I'm frustrated like crazy. The sins I deal with now are the same sins I deal with 20 years. I hear this all the time. When I go into the prison, when those guys are sexual, sexual offenders, you wouldn't believe the stories because it runs quite deep. It's impossible. Ludicrous. Oh, it's outdated. This is the, on the wrong side of history. Paul doesn't really know our culture. He really doesn't know our culture. Come on, Paul. I mean, way back then. I mean, homosexuality isn't even mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus didn't talk about it. Right? Right? It's old. Don't be mistaken. Don't be mistaken. Because what was going on there then is happening here and now. Except, I would say, to a degree and intensity that we have magnified it through our technology. But all these things bring up um, such a pressure or judgment or confusion. And therefore, there's either going to be, hide it all, don't deal with it. (laughs) Which is the way... A lot of churches take it that don't even mention it in church. And so when you grow up in church, as I did, how many times have you heard from the pulpit about sexual sin? Or sin? We've even lost that word, let alone this idea of sexual sin. And so most of my Christian life, I've gone week after week after week, and church after church, and you hear very few people talk about this. And therefore, our generation, my mom and dad, my grandma and grandpa, shh, they hit it. But not this generation. It's right out there. If your child is ten and a half years old, they have already, already been exposed. Ten years old. Now that wouldn't happen so much back in the New Testament because by 13 or 14 your child would have been married back then. But now you've got eight years, 10, 12 years between the time puberty hits to play with sexuality in such a way in our culture through television and well. So there's a purpose here. Uh, When you follow this flow, the first thing that Paul wants to understand, wants us to understand, is that there should not be a hint That's the NIV. Now, I want to show you something. 
for that word hint, if you read that passage, and this is where you need somebody like me to come in and explain this, hint is not even in the Greek. Uh, it should not be named among you. Named is not even in the Greek. So I, I, I'm, I'm doing some deep work here for you, but I want you to see this. And so what it says here is, but among you, the verb is mede, okonomia, uh, zomai, not be. There should not be. And it doesn't say hint. See, there's a space. Porneia, immorality. Uh, kai, uh, or any kind of impurity. Akathasea, or greed. Planoxia. Notice there's no hint. That's what I'm pointing at. Because these are improper. It means these don't fit. This isn't right for the people of God. Why? Why? It's not a rule of morality. It means God isn't this way. If you're going to imitate the love of Christ, understand this isn't love. And that's what you have to hear, that passage. It's not about sexual morality or immorality so much as this isn't the imitation. And that's the point. This does not reflect the holiness of God because Peter and Paul, everyone says, you shall be holy because the Lord is holy. You should be imitating this holiness. You should have the same love as it's transforming in your life. And that is way different because when you talk about uh, immorality, pornography, porneia is the word. What Paul understands what we don't understand is that the war that takes place between the flesh and the spirit is so damaging that it's the first thing he wants to get to the Ephesian church. I want you to be free of the abuse and the trauma and the, and the consequences of the sin because if you do a sinful, immoral act... If you have been involved in sexual abuse, the event takes very little time, but the consequences last a lifetime. And God wants to lift that burden of shame off of you that blocks your ability to see the grace of God. And therefore, he goes right after the Ephesians, right after the Corinthians, right after the Thessalonians. He goes after sexual purity. Why? Because this is the way. No, no. Because it's your life is going to be reflective of the imitation of Christ's love. And so what you need to know is lust is not love. That's what you simply... But love is different. And so sexuality then becomes the longing for love. Understanding the biblical sexuality is how God made our bodies to be reflective of this intimacy. And lust is a false, fake intimacy. And by the way, if the visual for the men and now the women, what is the counterpart if it's not visual do you know what the other, this is going to kill you. Do you know what the other pornographic means that we never, ever, ever, ever talk about? 
It's even worse than pornography. It's gossip. Gossip is like pornography. It's a false intimacy where you get information about somebody and a relational knowledge to know where people are without having any commitment to the relationship to protect. You have false intimacy. You know things about people that they didn't share. And gossip and pornography are similar in the sense that they both do not reflect the love of Christ. They both do not honor the people that you are looking at or talking about. I just threw that in. But but the passage is, we want you to walk in love as Christ did. So Christ would sacrifice for you. Christ is other-centered. Christ does not give up on you. Christ does not turn his back or manipulate you. So to walk in love is a fragrant sacrifice. It's a, it's a sacrifice that we don't, we don't want to be named among us. Not in a hint, because that's not who we are. And therefore, to lay aside those things, when you hear this, you say, well, you can't talk about it in church. Well, what do you mean you can't talk? Well, it says, it says not a hint. Don't, don't, be, don't, don't talk about it. Well, it doesn't mean that you can't talk about it because if that were true, you can't confess your sins or you can't be corrected in your sins. You can't deal, if you can't talk about it, you will never be healed from your sins. And therefore, as you walk in this, uh, it's a case really that Paul is saying, there's a new identity. If you're in Christ, you put aside the false identity and you move into this newness of life, which will touch your sexuality this week will touch your speech next week, will touch your relationships, and will touch the way you engage in spiritual warfare coming up. But he says that there should, <coughs> there should be an understanding that sexuality is a gospel issue. Did you hear that? Did you ever tie these two together? that the gospel is tied up in the very way you live your sexuality out. And what that means is that you were created to be a man, but you've been fallen and you've given to yourself to the wrong sexual expression. You are created to be a woman and you forfeited that beauty and the glory of a woman to be part of a relationship that is a fallen relationship. And the desires are legitimate. The expressions are illegitimate. The identity then becomes a false identity. And so you have to ask this question. Our culture really needs to have an answer. Is it all about sex? If I just find my sexual identity, is that enough? If I just declare that my identity is defined by my sexual understanding, gosh, you've just reduced the whole glory of heaven to one physical act. How small, how small this is when you're talking about the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, when he goes on, and he does go on, we won't deal with this here, but he says, do not be deceived. No immoral person, no one who's really identified in the false sense are going to have that inheritance of heaven. We'll look at that next week. But here's what 
what Paul is saying all the way through Ephesians. This old man, this old sexuality is being corrupted, is corruptible. And the deceitful desires, you will get caught in the impulses of your body. You'll be, get caught up in the, in the desires of the flesh. And therefore, the redeemed sexuality means to be made new in the attitude of your mind, to put on this imitation, this freedom, this, this grace that lifts me out of this darkness into the grace that says, I'm, I'm really not that. I am this. And therefore, what Paul is trying to say here is if you're going to imitate and walk and have these come out in your actions, then you're going to walk in love. This is the agape love. This is the tenderness that when you move into the territories of failure and addiction and shame, are you kind? Are you kind? When somebody, like the guy I know got out of prison and six weeks later went and abused another person, he came back in prison and he laid in the psych ward and the terror on this man's face, he said, I can't control my sexuality. I have to be locked up for the rest of my life. You are finding men and women who are enslaved. And this thing of lust will enslave bit by bit. Do you know that every second, every second, $3,000 is going out for internet pornography. Do you know that every second there are men and women 10 years and up who are being drawn into this? Last year, 18 million women were abused. 3 million men were abused. We'll talk about those statistics later. This is not something that Paul wants to overlook then or I do now because sex trafficking in the United States is number four in the world. China, Korea, Japan leading in the United States is number four. There is a serious issue going on because people are caught up in darkness. And yet Paul says, I want you to walk in love and I want you to walk in light. Well, if I can't bring my sin to the light, I will be walking in darkness. And so, therefore, we need a miracle to walk in wisdom. And then he'll get into this later on to walk in submission, which is another pot of coffee we need to talk about. But chapter 6 will be talking about the spiritual warfare that we will all be engaged in. And it's an internal warfare. But what Paul is saying here is that as you walk in love, what you want to find is that your identity is in Christ. What Paul wants to say is, if you love as Christ loves, you won't love with the, the self-centered, self-serving, manipulative, I'm going to get my, my jollies here. No, 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 no. That is not the kingdom of heaven. That is not who you are. And therefore, we want to identify with the Father. We want to identify who he is and how he loves. And therefore, that's who we are and that's how we love. But we also want to identify that which is not 
that which is not imitating the Father. And therefore, do not be deceived. And you will be deceived in our culture. Sexuality is a gospel issue. Sexuality then needs the influence of the Holy Spirit to work the miracle, to get me out of my shame, out of my lack of control, out of my darkness, out of my foolishness, out of my sin. And that's what Calvary is all about. There at Calvary, the burden was lifted and the stone was rolled away. And that's the good news. What Paul is saying to the Ephesians is, I need to reflect the love of God in a redeemed sexuality. This is not just say no, don't do that. It means, no, 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 embrace it. Because we are all, we are all built. And there's nothing more central to your spirituality than who you are as a man and how you move as a man in relationships. Get that, get that line. There's nothing more important that defines you than how you relate to people as a man. And what that maleness, what that reflection of God is for men is really different than what it is for women. But when men and women come together, there's a beautiful reflection. Single or married, you are called to live out who God created you to be in your body. Therefore, don't be ashamed. But we need to learn what redeemed sexuality is all about. So what he's saying here, and let me close as I move into this. He says, it's not so much trying to deal with the things that are wrong in our culture. It's not being counterculture. It's being kingdom culture. I don't have to be preoccupied with, oh, oh, there's so much going on in the world, and, and I really got to make sure that, you know, I got to avoid this. No, no, no. I got to be preoccupied with the king. As I'm facing him, I can imitate him, and his attitude, his spirit, everything about his grace comes in, and as I look at him with an unveiled face, the glory of the Lord is going to increase from one stage of glory to another. Therefore, Ephesians talks about all this. You are blessed. You are blessed. And you are adopted. And you have received the indwelling Holy Spirit. And therefore, you have the capacity to reflect His love. And guided by Him, you can put off the old. And you can put on the new. But the thing I want you to hear is in this passage... When you deal with unredeemed aspects of your soul, do you bring grace? Do you bring tenderness? Do you bring forgiveness in the fullness of grace? If you do, then you are imitating Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself to get you out of that. And that's what I want you to hear. It's this attitude in you that you are, you're going to deal with life in a radically different way. It's a kingdom way. Now, Plato said, it's okay to have sex. Plato in that culture in that time says, it's okay to have sex. We have the same message today. If you have sex with your mistress, it's okay. Or prostitutes, it's okay. As long as it doesn't interfere, it doesn't matter. This is the Greek culture. This is the Roman culture. This is the pagan culture. This is the American culture. 
long as it doesn't hurt anybody, I guess it's all right. Don't be deceived. It was Tertullian, though, who on those temple prostitutes, when Sunday morning was filled with sex in the temple. And what happened was, when people became a Christian, they quit going to the temple. And Tertullian said, these Christians are not coming anymore. They're walking away. But look, they're learning how to love. And so Tertullian said, this is really different. These Christians really, they're different. They're really different. Well, here's what I want you to understand. For the Gentiles, there is a sexually controlled spirit. That's called lust. But for Christians, it's a spirit-controlled sexuality. Get that? For the pagan, for the unbeliever, a sexually controlled spirit versus a spirit-controlled sexuality. Now, I've already planned this, but you guys don't know it. So I'm going to ask Dan, would you stand up? Kim, would you stand up? Rick, would you stand up? I'm going to have a, an audio-visual. Would you come up here for just a minute? Dan's going to represent the body. And Dan's going to represent the, the human body. Turn it this way, Dan. Thank you. And Kim's going to represent the brain. And he's going to be the intelligence behind this. And Rick is going to represent the Holy Spirit. So, so here's how this works. His physical body is filled with senses and sensualities and sexualities. So in his physical body, he's going to have some brain inform him about what his body is going to do and how he should act and his values and his ethics and so on. So the brain is going to inform the body. But what informs the brain? Well, here's the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes in and says to the brain, this is who you are. And if the brain says, this is who you are, his actions are mimed or imitated out in public. So people see the body. They don't see the brain. They don't see the Holy Spirit. So through the Spirit of God influencing the brain, his brain is transformed to say, here's what you should do, body. But if I take off the Holy Spirit and I move him back, just a couple steps, thank you, what have you got left? You've got the flesh. Now the flesh in the brain is trying to figure out what to do with the body. And without the spirit informing the body, this is what we have in American culture. You've got the flesh versus the spirit. But you also have the spirit versus the flesh. And therefore, how is this lust going to be transformed? It won't happen without the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when the Spirit of God comes in and a man is born again, there's a new spirit that comes in. And these three take on a whole different transformation. Where does it take place? In the brain. So your biggest sex organ is right here. And so as the Spirit of God informs you to conform to this one who's coming down, then you can be transformed in how you live out your sexuality. That's, rede that's a short redeemed sexuality. Thank you, guys. You then did good. So let me conclude. You need to understand that in our day and age, you are walking in a world that is challenging everything. But here's what you need to know. Either your theology, 
Either your theology will define your sexuality and your morality, or your morality, your sexuality and morality will define your theology. Is it lust or love? Is it lust or love? How do you know? Well, one, I mentioned about six months ago, if you move towards other people with, best, with your best interest in mind, at my expense, that's love. But lust means I'm moving towards other people with my interest at your expense. And therefore, I can manipulate you for me as opposed to sacrificing me for you. Love is always other-centered. And love always seeks to imitate the nature of God. Therefore, how do you change lust to love? Well, know this. You're instructed on what God's sexuality is all about, which is another pot of coffee. But you know that love is love, and to imitate the love is going to be reflected in your relationships. Know his story. Two, know your story. Because in your own life, it's a long journey back. But it is a redemptive journey. Three, you need to know your enemy's strategy because the enemy wants to destroy your story and keep you over here. Three, four, to know the strength of the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit of God can inform you, transform you, move you. And last, you know the patterns and the way out of temptation so you become wise and you walk in light. This is what we talked about with that word metanoia three months ago. We acknowledge him in all of our ways, and he will make our path straight, Proverbs 3. We acknowledge the full details of any abuse and harm. We speak not just a hint. We can tell the story without shame. We ask for healing. We ask the Lord to come in to restore our souls. And therefore, we accept our identity as redeemed image bearer and we imitate God's response of kindness, tenderness, a sensitivity to forgiveness and to lead us into the wonderful glory of that agape love. I love you as my beloved children. And that's for us. That's for you. That's what Paul was teaching the, the, the Ephesians. That's what God wants us to know. It's by grace that we have the miracle that will change us, change our identity from lust to love.